This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Angel by the Bed, a paranormal love story, written by Pam Farley. True love can persist even after death. There is a saying that all true love ends with tragedy, but it was not that way for Dan and Gabby. Gabby and Dan's short-lived affair cannot be forgotten, not even after Dan's death in the trenches at Gallipoli. He chooses to become Gabby's guardian angel to be close to her. After more than ten years, the fates who rule heaven have other plans for him. They assign him a task to befriend Gabby's husband, Dr. Tom Harrington, and encourage his work on a new vaccine. Dan is thrown into a chaotic life which tests more than his soul. His battle-damaged body is one hurdle that Tom helps him to overcome, but no one, not in heaven or on earth, can stop him from loving Gabby. And now for your listening pleasure. An excerpt from Angel by the Bed. Chapter 2. Dan I saw Gabby again. I requested to be her guardian angel. Not every person has one. There are choices in heaven. The most popular choice, of course, is to live again. A new life. A chance to make a go of that one life all over. But I didn't want to. The majority of people who remain in heaven opt to observe the world from our celestial paradise. I wanted to watch over my love in her domain. Not all the time, of course. She deserves some privacy, but on most days. She didn't marry until she was almost 26. Highly unusual in the 1920s. Some of her choices in men disturbed me so much that I intervened. The American officer who kept his wedding ring hidden in his wallet was one such beau. He was a visiting munitions expert tasked with training our diggers. He led Gabby on with talk of marriage and a future in California, but he had no such intent. One night, while he sat at her table pouring both gin and lies, I made sure a letter fell from his pocket. When he later walked to the bathroom, Gabby picked up the crumpled paper. It was a love letter from his wife. Gabby never saw him again. And there was Joe, the womanizing coward. He had a letter from his physician and a fake limp to keep him away from the war. He'd taken advantage of the glut of lonely single women. Gabby was just one of a half dozen that he strung along. But she grew annoyed with him when he constantly stood her up or arrived an hour late. I had a hand in making sure his pushbike chain came off its sprockets every time he was due to see her, and I make no apologies for my actions. But as time marched on, I could see she needed someone. Gabby had trained as a nurse. For two years, she worked in a repatriation hospital in Glenelg, South Australia, gaining experience and confidence. She had applied to work in a British field hospital during the war and presumed her application had been rejected. But really, a strong gust of wind had blown her letter from the tray of a young clerk's desk and into a waste paper basket. I couldn't stand the thought of her being in danger. 
She met Tom Harrington just two weeks after returning to Melbourne. Her father had taken ill and needed constant care while he convalesced. He chose to leave his home in Sydney and make use of his daughter's nursing skills. Tom attended her dad through the worst of his illness, and she seemed taken by his easy nature and compassion for his patient. Tom was a medical officer who had recently accompanied dozens of patients returning on a ship from Cairo. He'd often placed himself in peril to save lives. He was a bit of a legend and had the medals to prove it. Her attraction to Tom was obvious, but even after they married, she still kept my photo in the gold locket that hung from her neck. One year later, Daniel, named after me, was born, and in another two years, he had a little sister, Rosie. I watched out for the children, too, yanking Danny to an abrupt stop when he chased his ball down the road. The carriage had time to swerve, and the driver gave an irate shake of his fist as the horses cantered by. Gabby's face was ashen as she took the child's hand and led him back into the yard. And that time when Tom, who'd had a drinking problem since the war, left Rosie in the bath by herself. The child could not yet walk, but she attempted to clamber out. When she slipped, her head only stayed submerged for a second before she was lifted out and onto the safety of the bathroom floor. She coughed up water and then bellowed her outrage. When he returned to the room, it was Tom's turn to be shocked. So much so that he gave up the booze for a time. I think Gabby was happy. Maybe not ecstatic, but satisfied. And Tom was a good man. I would happily have overseen her life, a benign observer until the end of her days. But I received orders from above. Her life had to change. Dan, you were due here an hour ago. I wanted to argue that there was no such thing as time in heaven, but it didn't pay to argue with a senior angel. Sorry, Stu, I came as fast as I could. No, you didn't. Now you're not only late, but you're lying as well. I gave a shrug. I couldn't argue. He was right. We sat on the cream-colored sofa by the pool. Everyone has their own idea of paradise. Stu's looked like a Hilton hotel of the era. Mine was a cozy cottage. He poured iced tea from a crystal jug on the table. His movements seemed deliberately slow, and I wondered if he was trying to antagonize me, maybe pay me back for my tardiness. So why was I called back here? I finally asked. He took a long drink before answering, let out a satisfied, ah, and then said, I have a job for you. Before the complaint could leave my mouth, he held up a hand. I know you don't want to be away from your guardian duties, but this is important. Once more, I opened my mouth, but he beat me again. The job involves Gabby and her husband. This time, I didn't try to speak. The fates are getting anxious. So what? Those old fuddy-duddies are always upset about something. Stu put down his glass and peered at me. Have you been watching American movies again? What? There's nothing wrong with keeping up with social vernacular, is there? Stu looked disappointed. If you want to learn a new language, then study French. That American speak drives everyone nuts. I gave a grin. You just used an American phrase. What? Drives everyone nuts is a classic American phrase. Stu's face was going red. All right, all right, just forget it. He spluttered. So what's the job? As I said, the fates have messaged me about an important matter. 
there's a woman in Atlanta, Georgia. She's a pediatrician and will be the co-founder of the first successful pertussis vaccine in due course. The what? Bordetella pertussis, whooping cough. It kills thousands of people, especially children and infants. It will affect countless more if not checked. Oh, yeah? Well, this pediatrician, she needs to get some research assistance from some Australian doctors, which will culminate in the discovery of a vaccine in a few more years. But she needs this background work done. And? And one of these doctors, who should by now be well into this research, is none other than Tom Harrington. Oh, part of me is proud of Tom, but another part is a bit jealous. Such a groundbreaking medical discovery will impress Gabby. She may really fall in love with him. I need you to find out what's distracting Tom. I need to know why he isn't working as hard as he's supposed to. You want me to keep an eye on him? Yes. I didn't really want to be kept away from Gabby, but this research was important to the health of so many people who would otherwise be afflicted. I couldn't let my personal feelings get in the way of the future. Besides, if I was watching Tom, I would still be near Gabby some of the time. Sure, I'll do it. Stu gave me a brotherly slap on the back as I left. I closed my eyes for a second, and I was back at Gabby's. The house was chaotic. Tom was making a sandwich for Danny to take to school, while Gabby was trying to wash Rosie's face. The little girl had her arms locked across her chest and stamped her feet. Leave me alone, she wailed. To her credit, Gabby remained calm and finally coaxed the child toward her. If we wash your face, then we can go for a walk to the park, but not if you have food all over it. I gazed at her exquisite eyes, so full of love for her child. She'd once gazed at me with that same expression. Finally, I turned away and returned to Tom. I sensed his bad mood before he spoke. Put that apple in your school port and straighten your tie. Have you got your garters on your socks? Come on, pull them up. Danny had started school only weeks before. He looked far too young to be away from his mother. His port was too big for him. I'm leaving, Tom shouted. I'll drop Danny at school. He seemed annoyed that there was no reply from the bathroom, but as it was at the other end of the house, I doubt Gabby had heard him. He stormed out, grasping Danny's hand as he neared the front door. But once he was out on the street, he slowed his pace so the boy could keep up. The tram was coming, so he picked up Danny and ran to the stop. I sat in the seat in front and turned to watch them. Why is Mummy going to Aunt Betty's again? Danny asked. Tom glared out the window, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't looking at the houses they passed. Daddy? Aunt Betty is sick, again. His voice dripped with cynicism, and I wondered why he didn't believe Gabby. I had met Elizabeth a couple of times before the war, and recently I'd seen Gabby with her often. Elizabeth was often bedridden with constant chest infections, it seemed plausible that she needed help. Tom stood and waved to the conductor. The man took Danny's hand and helped him down the steps. From the school gateway, the boy waved, but his father was not looking. Tom hung his head as the tram traveled on, and I wondered what had caused this misery and bad mood. At the clinic, his patients were seated in a row across the back wall of the waiting room, 
One by one, he examined them and handed out medications from his glass-fronted dispensary cabinet. It was after two by the time the last one left. From her desk by the doorway, his stout receptionist asked if he was available to make a phone call. Tom rubbed his eyes and took a long drink of water before leaving his consulting room. Who wants me to call? Dr. Smetton has phoned twice to speak to you. He asked if you could go and see him at the hospital. I won't have time, Daphne. I need to go and see the Graves children with croup and change that dressing on old Jim Jarvis' leg. Some of the formality left the woman. Oh, go on, Tom. He needs your help, and you did promise him. Sorry, I just can't be bothered. I feel so tired. She moved from behind her desk and placed a hand on his back. It was a caring gesture. Still not sleeping? Tom shook his head but didn't speak. He seemed on the verge of tears. You were going to try sleeping draft. Didn't it work? We're sleeping in separate rooms. The statement shocked me, but Daphne merely nodded her head. What did she say? Nothing. She said nothing because she doesn't care. Is it still going on? It must be. She still calls his name at night, more often than she ever has before. Oh, dear. She's going away for a few days. She says she's going to her sister's, but I bet she's going to see him. I can't take it anymore. What will you do? What about the children? The sorrow was gone. Now Tom was angry. If she doesn't care about them, then why should I? Daphne sighed and reached below her desk for her handbag. It's late, and you haven't had lunch. You're not thinking straight. I'll go and get some bread and ham. A nice sandwich will perk you up. She looked back at him when she reached the door, but he was gazing at the floor. That night, I lay on the bed next to Gabby. I'd never been in their bedroom before. I hadn't wanted to see them together. Hated the thought of their intimacy. But Tom was sleeping two rooms further down the corridor, and I couldn't resist. Her hair still smelled the same. I nuzzled her neck and dozed. Angels don't really sleep, but we go into a fugue state. And that's how I must have been when something happened. Gabby spoke. She murmured my name. I stared at her face. She was definitely asleep. She mumbled something incomprehensible and then repeated my name. I sat on the side of the bed and wondered what to do. Tom thought she was seeing another man, but she was talking to a ghost. If only Tom had asked her who Dan was. It was obviously not her son. It would be years before he grew up to be Dan. And why didn't she care enough to ask why they now slept in separate rooms? Had she stopped loving him? Or had she stopped pretending she did? Gabby had to know how important it was to keep Tom happy. It was worth much more than just their marriage. But how could I let her know? I closed my eyes, trying desperately to come up with an answer. But when I opened them again, Stu was looking down on me. He used a swizzle stick to stir the ice in his whiskey. I clawed at the settee to sit up and face him. We're sending you back he said, without waiting for me to adjust to my new surroundings. He looked stern as he said, As a mortal. What? I had heard the words, but had not understood. Stu then looked worried, and that added to my own concern. You have to go back. You need to befriend Tom Harrington and convince him to continue his research. How the hell am I supposed to do that? 
an odd saying I know when there's no such place, but a lot of people still use the term. Stu handed me a manila folder stuffed with loose typed sheets. This is your cover story. Read it well. You are a widower whose wife and young baby succumbed to pertussis when you were away in Gallipoli. You will become Harrington's patient. You will try to befriend him, try to draw him out about his medical leanings. When he divulges his interest in the very disease that killed your family, you will encourage him, beg him, to renew his research. I'd only heard of one angel who'd been sent back. I'm not sure what his job had been, only that it was necessary to the fates that he set something right. Divine intervention was only used as a last resort. The mortal world really is a game of chance, except when it comes to major events, like the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, the catalyst for the outbreak of the war, and the mess that had got me here. Some things, according to the fates, must occur. Apparently, the pertussis vaccine was one of these. I guess the alternative might have meant the death, by that particular disease, of some necessary future mortal. The fates were pretty cloak and dagger about the future, but it wasn't up to us to argue. We just carried out our jobs. I took a sip of my iced tea, green that day, from the Orient, I believe, and rather refreshing. At first, I was a bit miffed about missing out on whiskey, but I understood why my sobriety was important. I didn't complain. Okay, I said. I understand why he needs to renew his research, but why would I need a doctor? Stu looked down at his lap. When he gazed back in my direction, his eyes were red-rimmed and saddened. I'm so sorry, was all he said. I was lying on a horsehair mattress pushed up against a wall. The room was small, painted white, and the window was curtainless. As my senses grew, the smell of urine and beer became evident, as did the stains around the door handles and walls. A train whistle blew outside the window, and the whole room seemed to shake as the locomotive passed closely by. My immediate reaction to the noise was to sit up. Bad move. The pain was unbelievable. It shot down my left side, immobilizing me, making me scream out. I fell back against the mattress and breathed deeply until the agony subsided. Now I knew why Stu had been sorry. I'd been sent back. The bit he didn't tell me was that I was going back the way I'd arrived, in my broken body. I rolled slowly onto my other side and waited. The pain was abating. All the bullets I received that day on Hill 60 had struck my shoulder and chest. I lifted my sweat-stained white shirt and studied the scars. The fatal bullet had punctured my chest, filling the cavity with blood and collapsing my lung. It was now healed over with an ugly white scar, but it still hurt to breathe. Another shot had damaged my shoulder. Bits of bone and shrapnel grated whenever I moved my left arm. There was no doubt about it. I really needed to see a doctor. Heaven, in its ultimate benevolence, had supplied me with an army-issue sling— it was agonizing to fit, but once placed, I could at least move without excruciating pain. I walked gingerly, guarding my left side, and avoiding any kind of swagger or contact with doorways or walls. It felt strange to have a body again, and I can honestly say I hadn't missed it. 
Out in the hallway, I discovered that my lodgings were enclosed in an old hotel that had once been the pride of Fitzroy. Now it was more of a hovel. As I passed through the foyer, I frowned at my reflection in a faded gilt mirror. I had never been a big man. My height and weight had always been average. But now I looked positively scrawny. The muscles on my left arm and shoulder had all but disappeared. I was emaciated, and my skin was an unhealthy gray hue. I certainly looked like a patient in dire need of attention. Heaven at least got the proximity right. I had only walked one block, and I found the road that Tom's consulting rooms were situated on. The wallet in my pocket contained papers that identified me as an injured war veteran. There was also a ten-pound note, which shocked me a little. The hierarchy in heaven are not known for their generosity. By the time I got to Tom's clinic, I was sweating and the pain was a fire down my side. The door opened just as I reached it, and an old lady pushed past me, her stick tapping at the pavement. Daphne gave me a curt glance and then asked my name. I explained that I hadn't been to see Dr. Harrington before. Yes, I realized that. If you had, I would have known. What is your address? Once the form had been filled in, she pointed to a chair and told me to sit. At some point, she must have noticed my discomfort, probably when I groaned in pain for the hundredth time. She came and stood in front of me. What's wrong? she asked. Shrapnel, I explained, in my shoulder. She frowned and asked, When were you injured? Um, June 1915. My lord, that's over a decade ago. Why haven't you had surgery? I, um... She frowned and her tone softened. Shell shock. And then more quietly, Asylum? I nodded. For a second she looked horrified, but she was nothing if not professional. Doctor will see you next, she said loudly as she walked back to her desk. There were at least four other people waiting before me, but none seemed game to contradict her decision. When Tom finally came out with a young pregnant woman, I was ushered to go in. I stumbled into the room and almost collapsed before I got to the chair. Tom supported me hand against my shoulder blade, and I heard him gulp as the bones beneath his hand grated. Hold still. He lifted my left arm just a few inches, and we could both hear the crunch. Christ, he muttered. After making a few notes, he sat opposite me. I'm going to book you in at the hospital to have a radiograph done. Have you had them done before? No, nothing like that. Once the pieces of floating metal are removed, your shoulder may have a chance to mend. You will probably always have a gammy arm, but you will be out of pain. If it's too badly damaged, they will probably want to amputate. I gasped, but said nothing. I couldn't help but wonder if Stu had guessed this was a possibility, too. Daphne told me you've been in an asylum since you were shot. I looked at the floor and gave a small nod. It's okay. We'll make sure you don't have to go back there. Where was it? The only place I knew of was Ararat, so that's what I said. Probably one of the better institutions, but still. He left the rest unsaid. The pain is really bad. It was so bad, in fact, that I was beginning to worry whether I could even carry out this job. In my mortal life, I had never known such intense agony, except at the very end. I felt as though my mind was beginning to fray. 
In this short amount of time, agony had overtaken my life. Of course. He rose from his chair and went to his dispensary. He filled a few bottles and returned with a metal syringe filled with a cloudy white liquid. This is extremely potent, but it will give you immediate relief. You'll need to lie on the couch until the fogginess clears. I have prepared more medicine that you must take every six hours to keep the pain at bay. Of course, the real cure will be surgery, which I will request as soon as possible. I can't believe they made you endure this injury for so long. I found it hard to talk. It's only been recently that I felt clear enough in my head, if you understand my meaning. I understand. You have undergone terrible trauma to both your body and your mind, but you should have had better care. And he meant it. He took my hand and squeezed it. He had real sorrow on his face. The injection was working. I still felt the pain, but it was as if it now belonged to someone else, sitting a little further away. Tom gave a smile that mirrored my relief, and I was pleased that Gabby had found someone as kind as him. Then I fell asleep. In the following weeks, Tom helped me to control the pain. I saw him daily for the first few days. The injections, in conjunction with the foul-tasting medicine, gave me the release that may otherwise have maddened me. He wrote me a letter for the radiologist. The specialist said little about the pictures he took. Although I saw them at the end of the developing process, I had no real idea what I was looking at. I returned to Tom's rooms for the results. He met me at the door with a look of concern on his face. Dan, I'm not going to beat around the bush, he said once we were seated. I've shown these radiographs to three different surgeons at the hospital today, and they're all of the same opinion. Your shoulder joint and shoulder blade are too badly injured. Even if the fragments of shrapnel were to be removed, the damage was done so long ago that repair would be impossible. What if the shrapnel had been removed when I was first shot? Well, that would be a different outcome, but the problem is, it wasn't. I could hardly tell the man what had really happened. I didn't know myself. What I did know was that my body was not ten years older. It was exactly as it was on the day I was shot. Someone upstairs had sped up the healing of my chest wound, but it was still pink and tender. So, what have the surgeons recommended? I already knew the answer. I'm sorry, Dan, but amputation is the only option. No. After the initial operation, it would be an end to your pain. I want them to remove as much shrapnel as they can. I want to keep my arm. He was silent for a long time. He tapped at his front teeth with a manicured fingernail. Finally, he said, most surgeons refuse to be told what to do by patients, especially after they've given their professional opinion. But I have a close friend who may be willing to help. I will assist in the operation if you would like. Once more, I was impressed by Tom's empathy. Thank you, Dr. Harrington. I would really appreciate that. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Angel by the Bed. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.